morning. The passage is found on page six of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. This comes from Luke chapter one, <coughs> verses 67 through 79. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through the holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, which by the rising sun will come up to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Let's say a word of prayer together before we begin. God, we are asking that you would be present, that you would advent even here and now by your spirit. Because we need your help to profit from this time deeply, life-changingly. Uh, because it's not just a matter of thinking rightly. It's not just a matter of changing ourselves. We need you to be present. We need your word to come alive. We need you to speak to our souls. So do this supernatural work in our midst. Do it for our good because we need you. Do it for your glory because we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's a curious thing in the Bible, in the New Testament story of the birth of Christ. Every time people were told about the birth of God's Son, they would erupt in singing. That's what we do, after all, when we're overcome with joy and with anticipation. I wonder when the last time you broke into a tune or maybe just a hum because of the joy that you experienced at some good news. If you get the Advent story right, you don't just respond just with simple assent or the nod of a head or intellectual agreement. You respond with an explosion of the heart. This is when good news touches our lives. This is how you know that you've got good news. Do you have the songs of Advent in your heart? Zechariah is one of these individuals who sings a song upon hearing about Jesus' birth. Who's Zechariah? We don't actually know too much about him, but we do know this. He's the father of John the Baptist. That's who the his at the beginning of verse 67 is, John the Baptist. Earlier in the chapter, we're told that Zechariah was a priest in Israel. 
that he and his wife Elizabeth were righteous in God's sight, and that they had no children, and in their old age they had pretty much given up hope of having a child. But one day while serving in the temple doing his priestly duties, Zechariah was met by an angel who told him, to his surprise, that his wife Elizabeth would be getting pregnant, nearly miraculously in their old age, and that their son would be a great prophet, and not just any old prophet, a forerunner of the Messiah, the promised one who would come to rescue his people, indeed, renew the whole world. Zechariah hesitated just enough. He hesitated to believe. So as a form of rebuke and instruction, the angel struck him mute. He was unable to talk for the duration of his wife's pregnancy. Finally, his son was born, and on the day of his baby's naming, when he was circumcised on the eighth day, Zechariah's tongue was loosed. He could talk again. And today's passage is sort of a transcript of the song that he sang when he could finally talk and sing again. And what we learn if we look at this passage and what we're going to see is that this song is a song of victory, and it's a song for the vanquished. It is, first of all, a song of victory, but for whom it's a song for the vanquished. Let's take a look at each of those. It's a song of victory. Imagine not being able to speak for almost a whole year. I mean, some of you are saying that I would almost die not being able to talk for that long. Uh, some of you know people who you wish would be struck mute for a whole year. Uh, if you were speaking finally for the first time, what do you think might be the first words out of your mouth? What was the first word out of Zechariah's mouth? How does he start this song? Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because what? I can finally talk again. God answered my prayers and gave me a child. All things worth celebrating for sure, but no. Praise be to the Lord because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Zechariah and Elizabeth did get the desire of their hearts in the birth of their son, didn't they? Yes. That matters to them and to God, but the greatest desire, their greatest joy, what made him almost look past his own son, whom he doesn't mention till two-thirds of the way down, was how overwhelmed he became, how hopeful, how overjoyed Zachariah's heart was at the news of the arrival of the Messiah, and the promise of his rescue. Zechariah's song, first of all, is a song about the coming Messiah's triumph, his victory over enemies. In verse 71, he sings about salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. In verse 74, he says, the Messiah will rescue us from the hand of our enemies. It's a song of victory. If you had asked people in Zechariah's day what salvation and rescue from enemies referred to, 
they probably would have told you, well, that's a reference to the day that the Messiah would come. He would come and crush the Roman Empire and set us free from our oppression. After all, they were an oppressed people under Roman captivity and rule. They were longing for a military rescue. They wanted political freedom, understandably. And God's grace does indeed show up in the social and political realms. But Zechariah, in fact, we know, had a wide-angle lens on this victory. He ties it to God's covenant with Abraham in verse 73, and that's a spiritual reference to the book of Genesis, chapters 12 and 15 and 22, when God promised Abraham that he would be the spiritual father of people from many nations all over the world. So that gives us a clue that Zechariah isn't only singing about Israel and her political rescue. He's also singing about people of all ethnic backgrounds and their spiritual rescue as well. And the enemies over whom the Messiah triumphs, therefore, aren't one of God's people, are, 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 sorry, aren't one group of people like Rome. They are, in fact, all the ugly manifestations of sin and of evil. Yes, structural injustices, oppression, even death itself, as well as Satan and the selfishness of sin in our own heart. Friends, in Jesus, God promises you victory in Jesus. We're told this again and again in the New Testament as the apostles reflect upon the work of Christ in his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the future day when Christ will advent, will come again. He then will come, then the end will come, when he will hand over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. There's a hope worth hanging on to. And Hebrews 2, which reflects on the birth of Christ, his becoming a human being for our freedom from slavery to sin and death. It says this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, becoming human, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Why was Jesus born that first Christmas morn? Not simply to make your life easier, or to make you happier, or to give you a little bit of inspiration each day, 
Rather, he was born to die, and he died and rose from the dead to give us victory. Victory over poverty. Victory over racism. Victory over human trafficking. Victory over the displacement of refugees. Victory over terrorism and mass shootings because he came to give us victory over death and victory over depression and victory over cancer. And don't you dare forget victory over sin and the horrors of hell which is simply the cost of those who abandon God their all, all their lives, that one day God would finally abandon them. Victory over fear or your bad temper or your habit of lying to look good. Make your own list. What do you most need to believe today about the victory of Jesus? Some of these victories are enjoyed now. Some not until he finally returns his second advent. But the victory over every manifestation of sin and evil far as the curse is found has already been won in the cross of Jesus. And that victory is yours in him. Hallelujah. Merry stinking Christmas. Advent, Christmas, and the hope of Christ's return means that violence and oppression and injustice and death itself, even sin, has an expiration date. Advent means also that the new heavens and new earth, the perfection of this world and our own hearts in Christ have a guaranteed on-time arrival. But sometimes it's hard to believe in this victory, especially during times like these in our world when just about everything feels like it's falling apart. I quoted Archbishop Desmond Tutu a few weeks ago, his words feel like an apt summary of these days. God, we know you're in control, but can't you make it just a little bit more obvious? For some of you, the victory of Christ feels far off and unreal. You're tired. You're ready to give up in the fight of justice, in the struggle against sin. What do you do? What does Zechariah sing that we should do? You need to take into your heart the word picture that Zechariah gives us in verse 69. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. A horn of salvation. This is awesome. It's the picture of a horn, you see, as in the horn of a deer or maybe a ram or a wild ox, a bull. In the ancient Near Eastern world, for understandable reasons, with these terrifying things pointed at you on a regular basis, the horn became a symbol of power. 
the horn began to symbolize people who had great power, military and political and kingly power. And so the language of cutting off someone's horn meant to strip them of their influence or their power. And so you can understand how in the Old Testament, the horn became a favorite symbol of the coming Messiah. Because the horn was a sign of tremendous strength and victory in conflict. So as we're talking about the victory of Jesus, what are you picturing in your heart, O weary ones? Do you see a powerful horn piercing its enemy? Or do you see... Last summer, my family had the chance to visit the Bronx Zoo as part of our summer vacation. One of my favorite moments at the zoo was visiting the rhino exhibit, because we don't have rhinos down the street at our zoo. We've got pandas, though, but we just don't have any rhinos. You see, my two-year-old son, Jeremiah, his favorite stuffed animal, whom he actually brought to church today somewhere, is a little rhino. He calls it Nino. He's doing, doing his best. And it just might be his best friend, you see. It's cute. It's soft, cuddly, light blue all over, except for the very tip of his nose, where the rhino has the cutest little white nub of a horn. So we're at this rhino exhibit, and this is the first time that Jeremiah has ever seen a real-life rhino before, which, of course, looks nothing, looks nothing like his little nino. And I say, hey, Jeremiah, there's a rhino pointing across the field, across the fence. And at first, Jeremiah barely looks up as if to say, look, don't be ridiculous, Dad. Rhinos live in a toy store. <laughs> and then finally, upon much coaxing and pointing, he looks up and finally sees the real rhino. And he gives this look of skepticism like, you know, and then quickly loses interest because he's looking at this massive, ugly, majestic animal that's very unhuggable and very not cute, that's gray rather than baby blue, and most of all, that's got this terrifying sharp horn on the tip of his nose rather than Nino's soft, kissable, little white polyester nub. Some of us are living defeated because you hear about the victory of Christ and you're acting like and believing like his horn of salvation is nothing but a polyester nub. Have you seen your fierce, heavenly rhino lately? Are you living languishly, not sensing the power that is made available to you, the victory, whether present or soon yet to come, 
to be given to you. Are you believing this? Are you sort of limp and hung over? Because you don't have the right picture in your heart. Do you see raised before you in the birth of Christ and later in the cross and his resurrection, God the Father raising up his horn of salvation in all its power and strength, in all its terrifying finality to that which he calls his enemies. Do you see the horn of salvation piercing the darkness? Do you see the strong horn of salvation piercing injustice and oppression? Do you see the horn piercing the penalty of sin in the cross? Do you see the horn piercing death itself in the empty tomb? For many Christians, you know what you need to know about what Jesus promises you. But for us, the problem isn't that we have wrong theology in our heads, but a wrong picture in your heart. Do you see the horn of Christ's salvation? And if we would sing it into our hearts, maybe with fresh power, maybe anew, this Advent season, then we begin to grow with the sort of confidence that you find in verse 68 when Zechariah sings about the Messiah's arrival, which has not yet happened. Christ hasn't been born or hasn't lived and died and risen again, and yet he sings about it in the past tense. So sure is he that the victory has been won. He says, he has come to his people and has redeemed them. It's a song of victory. Have you heard it? Have you sung it? It's also, secondly, a song for the vanquished. A song of victory, but also a song for the vanquished, by which I mean those who confess they're defeated, the hornless, as it were. How do you share in this victory? Who qualifies to get in on it? If you see verse 79, on whom does the light shine? On those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Not the happy, not the cheery, contrary to the ways that we typically celebrate the Christmas season. Not the rich and plenty, those who have lots of gifts to give away. Not those that have their Christmas sweaters on and can feign to be of good cheer, regardless of the darkness that they carry in their own hearts. The light shines on the needy, the lost, those in darkness, the sinner, those that are willing to confess that I can't do it on my own. In fact, I'll pierce myself on my own. Those who are hornless, those who cry out in need for the horn of salvation to save them. And in fact, this is what Zechariah is singing about his own son. 
John, John the Baptist. His ministry is the ministry of preparing the way for Jesus' arrival. In verse 76, he sings, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. You know, sometimes people ask, you want to hear good news first or you want to hear the bad news first? John says, I don't give you a choice. I want to give you the bad news first. And it's so that the good news would be that much sweeter. John arrives on the scene and he says to everyone, you might not like what you're hearing, but you need someone to save you. You are a selfish person. You are a sinner. You are by instinct opposed to God. You are by instinct prone to want to crown yourself and live life however you want to live, which is what the Bible calls sin. We call him John the Baptist, but why did baptism become such a trademark of his? Do you know why? Because no one at that time was doing it. You see, in the Jewish community in the first century, it was Gentile, quote-unquote, sinners that were washed with water when they converted to Judaism, but Jews were rarely and almost hardly ever baptized for the confession of their sins, for the forgiveness of their sins, the symbolism being water for dirty souls. Here is John that says, y'all need a washing, even me. Because the Savior is going to come but you got to cry out for him first. Because you don't go to the hospital unless you can admit you're sick. And you don't look for a savior unless you first admit that you can't save yourself. And you can't ever find yourself looking for life Unless you start to admit on your own you're dead and you can't ever start to expect yourself to look for spiritual power unless you finally admit you're weak. This was the preparation work that John was doing. He was calling people to repentance. He was calling them to admitting their need, their weakness. Have you? Have you? followed along in the spirit of the ministry of Zechariah's son? Have you allowed him to pave and prepare the way for the Savior? The other day I was admiring our little tree, Christmas tree in our living room with my daughter and she was looking at the different ornaments. We have a small, fun little set of the Incredibles great little animation cartoon from some years ago we were laughing at and giggling over Mr. Incredible who isn't looking very incredible he broke his arm uh, Edna baby Jack Jack and then we came across a curious looking character from the movie and that's syndrome you know the evil genius with buck teeth and big hair on a mission to destroy all the Incredibles and it seems everything good in this world. 
Elena turned to me, and just reading his face, she could tell, she asked, is he a bad guy, Daddy? She hadn't seen the movie, but she was right. Everything else on the tree was happy and pure and shiny and good. This character didn't seem to belong on the Christmas tree, didn't seem to belong in Christmas at all. And then I responded to her, and she got it. Christmas is for the bad guys too, honey. And that's good news because sometimes we're bad guys too. Do you have grace in your hearts? The grace of repentance, the grace of honest weakness to say, sometimes, oftentimes, deep in my heart, I'm a bad guy too. And yet by God's grace, he gives me a place on his Christmas tree. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran minister, martyred for the faith in Nazi Germany, the Nazi Germany era, once said, God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God is near to lowliness. God loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, the broken. There is before you the horn of salvation, the victory of Christ. Who is it for? Not those who take up their own arms and say, I'm ready to fight the battle. But those who say, I've got nothing to fight with, you need to fight with me. Fight against the power of sin. Fight against the evil and injustice in this world. And by your spirit, I will be along with you. But by myself, I'm weak. I'm a sinner. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. I need the victory of the horn of salvation. Advent is the promise of victory for the vanquished. The vanquished for those struggling with poverty but willing to cry to God for help. The vanquished for those who feel defeated by the power of sin and yet find the secret of power in that lowly place of crying out to your Savior. Advent is for the weak, for the needy, for those who admit that they're in the rough places of this world. The victory of Advent is for you, but you've got to get low and you've got to get small, kind of like a baby in a manger. And those who humble themselves there will find fresh hope to dream, fresh hope to labor and live in light of the coming victory. In his Christmas sermon on peace in 1967, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., towards the end of his sermon, spoke about this time four years prior that we all know so well, what he called a sweltering August afternoon when he stood in the nation's capital and talked to the nation, he said, about a dream that I had had. Then he said, I must confess to you today that not long after talking about that dream, I started seeing it turn into a nightmare. Of course, with reference to the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham not long after, resulting in the murder of four young girls. 
a reference to the violence and poverty that he saw in the black community at the time, in reference to the rising engagement in war in Vietnam. And Dr. King says, yes, I am personally the victim of deferred dreams, of blasted hopes, and then with characteristic realism mixed with optimism and prophetic verve. He says, but in spite of that, I close today by saying, I still have a dream. I still have a dream, he said, that one day justice will roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. I still have a dream that one day war will come to an end, that men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, that nations will no longer rise up against nations, neither will they study war anymore. I still have a dream today that one day the lamb and the lion will lie down together and every man will sit under his own vine and fig tree and none shall be afraid. I still have a dream today that one day every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill will be made low. The rough places shall be made smooth and the crooked places made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. It will be a glorious day. The morning stars will sing together and the sons of God will shout for joy. I still have a dream. Taking the language and the songs of the prophets Isaiah and Amos, Dr. King looks forward to the victory of Christ in his second advent and hanging on to it, not just restating it, but taking it into his heart, letting the horn of salvation fill his soul not a little nub, but this strong, powerful rhinoceros grace that is yours and mine in Christ. And it's with that fullness of faith that he can rise up in view of the coming victory with new strength to live in faithfulness, in hope, to fight for justice, to live humbly, to do justice, to walk humbly with your God. And to say along with him, I've got grace for another day this Advent. I still have a dream. Advent is a promise of victory for the vanquished. Is that you? Is it yours? It can be in Christ even today. Let's pray. And so we look to you, our strong Savior, and your victory. We put our hope in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.